ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Are human beings just a contingent assemblage of elements, or as Stephen Jay Gould put it, are we merely a tiny twig on an improbable branch of a contingent limb of the tree of life? Or was Freeman Dyson perhaps closer to the truth when he acknowledged, the more I examine the universe, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known that we were coming. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson. Today I'm joined again by Dr. Michael Denton to talk about the special place of human beings in the fundamental order of nature. Denton is author of numerous books, including his brand new work, The Miracle of Man. He's a senior fellow with Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture and holds an MD from Bristol University and a PhD in biochemistry from King's College in London. Welcome back, Mike. Hi, pleased to be here, Eric. So last time we talked about the work you've been doing for a couple of years, several years now, actually, relating to the way in which the underlying fabric of nature down to the very elements seems particularly well suited for beings such as ourselves. And in this new book, The Miracle of Man, I feel it's kind of a capstone on several books you've written in recent years and brings a lot of wonderful detail and additional scientific evidence to the table. Uh, You also discussed last time how the argument you're presenting is different from, but helps to complement the traditional ID arguments that our audience might be familiar with. Specifically, rather than making an argument about the cause of the universe or the cause of living beings, you're focusing on the underlying facts of how things are, the ensemble of fitness, as you call it. And then second, you mentioned that your argument is purely a secular argument, although it, of course, is consistent with certain theological interpretations and has broader implications. Well, firstly, yes, I I think it can be considered secular because all the evidence alluded to throughout Miracle of Man in defending the claim that the universe is uniquely fit for beings of our biology is entirely non-controversial scientific evidence. In fact, the core argument is really quite straightforward. Given the constraints of the laws of nature, including the constraints of the properties of matter and the properties of the periodic table of elements, The only possible complex intelligent beings capable of understanding the universe and developing a technological civilization are beings very similar to ourselves. Given those constraints, we are all that's possible. And this is an entirely secular consequence or prediction, irrespective of any religious or theological implication one might want to infer from the evidence. And maybe just talk us through a little bit of the structure of the book. Yeah. First of all, as to the layout and logic of the book. Each chapter examines a specific case of environmental fine-tuning, which I refer to as prior fitness in nature, which enabled the actualization of a specific adaptation, which is vital to our biological design. In one chapter, I examine the fitness of water for the circulation. In another, the fitness of air for breathing with lungs. In another, the fitness of visual light for high-resolution vision. I point out that without the prior fitness in nature for such key adaptations upon which our biological design depends, no complex chemical life forms remotely comparable to ourselves will be possible. Mm-hmm. Overall, the text builds what I believe to be a compelling case for my claim that the natural environment is uniquely fit or fine-tuned for beings like ourselves. And quoting Freeman Dyson again, the universe must have known in some sense we were coming. Yeah, it's a very evocative phrase. I love that. So, you know, I I love Star Trek, Mike, and uh, I think they had an episode or two where they had beings made out of silicon. What about other, you know, chemical life forms using a different set of atoms? Well, as far as we know at present, there are no 
alternatives to the familiar carbon-based life as it exists on Earth. Oh, rats. So my Star Trek <laughs> episode oh, yeah. might be more fiction than fact. Well, I, was, I was also a lot, long time ago a Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. I watched most of the movies, many of the movies recently. But yes, I, I remember that particular episode, actually. The fact is that as we now understand things, no other atoms are fit to build complex biological beings remotely comparable with ourselves. Silicon is often alluded to as an alternative to carbon. However, as Irwin and co-author comment in their recent book, Cosmic Biology, a world in which silicon would provide a better backbone for life than carbon would be either extremely cold with no oxygen and a stable liquid other than water, or a world so warm that the only liquid would be likely to be molten silicates. Hmm. In either case, the choice for complicated chemical reactions comparable to carbon-based metabolism would appear to be much less because of the temperature extremes. No forms of life based exclusively on silicon have ever been found, while many complicated organic compounds, including amino acids, protein building blocks, have been found in meteorites brought to Earth from outer space. And other authors concur. Plaxco and Gross made the amusing comment in their book Astrobiology that if a spaceship ever arises carrying aliens to Earth, because they will be necessarily like us, carbon-based. The smart money says we should welcome them with carbon-based cakes and not with silicon-based rock. <laughs> yeah. And they further comment carbon wins over silicon and other naturally occurring elements fare even worse. In some, if silicon is discounted, then this may well mean that only the carbon atom can form the basis of living systems. And... This is why, in searching for life on exoplanets, NASA stick to the aphorism, follow the water, and look for carbon-based life in a matrix of water as it exists on Earth. No one looks seriously for silicon life forms. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So let me play devil's advocate for a minute, though, Mike. If your thesis is correct, and as you suggest, the evidence is so compelling, why don't we hear more about this? Very good question, and uh, very, very significant as well. Yeah, the reason resides in an extraordinary blind spot in academic biology, that biologists, both evolutionists and creationists, are more focused, indeed almost entirely focused, on biological adaptations rather than the prior environmental fitness which made their actualization possible. For example, in biological texts, the origin of the eye is discussed by many authors. Darwin discussed it at length in The Origin, and many subsequent authors have followed Darwin in offering various environmental accounts of how the adaptive wonder of the eye came about. But to my knowledge, in no major evolutionary work is the fitness of visual light for high-resolution optical devices ever mentioned. The remarkable fact that both the energy levels of light photons and their wavelength is just right for a high-resolution optical eye of the size of the human eye is never discussed. And in the similarly endless discussions, really the evolution of lungs, the vital fitness of air, its low density and viscosity, for example, for breathing, for the uptake of oxygen in the lungs is never mentioned. Hmm. And regarding the unique fitness of water to form the medium of the circulation, again, no mention. The fitness of the atmosphere for air breathing, no mention. The fitness of sunlight and the atmosphere for photosynthesis, no, no mention. This yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you're so you're hoping to fill this void, it sounds like, with some of the work that you've been doing over the last several years, and particularly with this new book. Yes, and the reason why this evidence can be compelling, but not acknowledged, is that because of this evolutionary blind spot, 
Mm. The almost complete omission of any consideration of the vital importance of environmental fitness and enabling the key adaptations underlying our biological design um, is the fundamental reason why the compelling evidence I review has been entirely overlooked. Yeah, and I and I think there's been a couple of other people who have looked at this from a standpoint. I know you talk about Lawrence a lot in your book. He was one of the great authors who initially talked about the fitness of the environment. What what was his sense of this even a hundred years ago? Well, he 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 recognized the same blind spot, the disinterest of academic biology in environmental fitness and a focus only on biological adaptations. What he said in his classic fitness of the environment was. Darwinian fitness is compounded of a mutual relationship between the organism and the environment. Of this, fitness of the environment is quite as essential a component as the fitness which arises in the process of organic evolution. But it has been the habit of biologists since Darwin to consider only the adaptations of the living organism to the environment. Yet fitness there must be in environment as well as in the organism. How, for example, could man adapt his civilization to water power if no water power existed within his reach? Mm -hmm. And it's because of this complete disregard for environmental fitness, the evidence of nature's unique fitness for our biological design is never seriously considered. Let me pause here for a minute, Mike, because I think we need to be clear about one point for our listeners. I'm particularly attuned to this because just over the past couple of weeks, I've been in conversations with a number of biologists and theorists about the role of the environment in evolution. As I read your book, and as I understand your discussion of environmental fitness, I think we distinguish between necessary and sufficient conditions. And I think you're not claiming that the mere existence of a certain environmental condition will produce a particular organism, say a bacterium, an elephant. And you aren't arguing, if I understand it right, that there's no design to be found in something like the bacterial flagellum or encoded information in DNA. But what I am hearing you say is that the environment, the conditions, the properties, the makeup is necessary to even get to the point where something like a bacterium or an elephant could come about, whether or not the latter occurred by design or otherwise. Am I understanding that right? You're expressing my views very well. Yes, uh, yes, that's exactly my view. Yeah. Okay, great. So, so teeing off of that then, for those of us who are interested in intelligent design, what are the implications of environmental fitness then? Well, one very important ID implication of environmental fitness is that it provides what is an effect, as I see it, an independent line of evidence supportive of the traditional types of ID inference based on a consideration of the intricate design of biological adaptations. Mm -hmm. One thing that might help to, to, to bring this out is reference to a classic analogy. Recall Paley's famous inference from watch to watchmaker. Traditional ID arguments are based on the generic claim that adaptively complex objects in which all the parts, like the parts of a watch, are adapted to serve a function, timekeeping in the case of a watch, can only have arisen by intelligent design. An ardent skeptic might claim that although it seems that ID is the explanation, the possibility still remains, however unlikely, that perhaps there is some way in which complex biological adaptations analogous to the watch could have come about by a series of intermediate functional forms. But now suppose, shortly after finding the watch, you and your skeptical friend were to find a blueprint specifying how all the basic parts of the watch were to be made, a blueprint which would be analogous to the prior necessary environmental fitness which enables the functioning of the eye, the lungs, the circulation, and so forth, specifying as it were the environmental requirements or preconditions 
or the prior fitness for making the watch. Such a discovery, a blueprint specifying the manufacture of the parts of the watch lying on the ground beside the watch, would enormously reinforce the ID conclusion that the watch was indeed the result of design. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think that's a very interesting analogy and a good way to take the, you know, as you say, a compliment to the ID argument because you're talking about something that had to exist prior to yeah. you can even get to the point of designing something. Yeah. And in a, in a real sense, the blueprint would represent what I would say is independent evidence for the inference to design. And independent, right. and independent evidence is not to be sneezed at. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, good, it's good. vital and critical in um, defending really any argument. Mm-hmm. Anyway, to go back to Miracle of Man, all the various ensembles of environmental fitness described in that book represent what are essentially analogous to blueprints specifying the exact environmental preconditions or prior fitness which enable the actualization of the various vital adaptations upon which our biological being depends. And this, I argue, does amount to independent lines of evidence for the ID inference. So the book provides a highly supportive but entirely independent line of evidence for the generic ID inference from the adaptive complexity of living things. Yeah, I like that. I like how you've laid that out. I think that's really helpful. So in your book, just to to focus on one particular item from the 1500s again, you have this wonderful drawing from Andreas Vesalius from the mid-1500s, which was one of the first real serious attempts to understand the human circulatory system. Uh, you had mentioned last time how much we've learned in recent decades about what is required to have large multicellular terrestrial organisms such as ourselves that utilize oxidation as a source of energy. I don't want to dive into the physiology of the human heart here as you've covered that elsewhere, but... Maybe we could discuss a couple of things at a more fundamental underlying level. So talk to us a little bit, Mike, about the simple fact, and this is one that we observe every day and we don't give it a second thought, the fact that we're land-dwelling creatures. Right. Well, yes, it's being land-dwelling creatures is of enormous importance. Um, it's a very significant aspect of our being. In fact, being terrestrial matters. Our scientific and technological achievements over the past several centuries depend on us being terrestrial rather than aquatic. It is only on dry land that fire is possible, and only by using fire can metals be extracted from their ores. Further, it is only on the land that chemical phenomena can be investigated, and only on land that electricity can be exploited for technological purposes. Thus, it is only on the land that the path to science and an advanced technology can be followed. And so it must be throughout the universe. With apologies to science fiction, no intelligent creature with a sophisticated technology anywhere in the universe will breathe through gills. Oh, he's taking another swipe at Star Trek. Here, here we go. <laughs> and many other scientists. Yeah, exactly. Many others. Another great advantage of being terrestrial is that it's possible to take up far greater quantities of oxygen as a gas from an atmosphere than extracted from water because of the low solubility of oxygen. Liter for liter, water contains far less oxygen than air. And this is why all the most advanced organisms, including ourselves, are terrestrial air-breathing organisms. The metabolic rate, that's the rate of oxygen utilization of terrestrial organisms, is far greater than that of aquatic organisms. A hummingbird uses vastly more oxygen per minute per body mass than a salmon. That raises an interesting question for me. So why, why is it that aquatic organisms generally can have a lower metabolic rate? Is it because they're held in suspension? And I'm just trying to think through that a little bit. It's just, it's just um, I mean, 
the metabolic rates of organisms vary enormously in the, in, mm-hmm. in the seas and in the land. And it's just that, in fact, um, aquatic organisms, you know, just happen to have much lower utilization of oxygen than things on the land. We are more complicated. We do more things and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So we need more oxygen. We need more energy. Well, that's very interesting, Mike. I appreciate you sharing that with us. I know we're just barely uh, scratching the surface of all the incredible evidence you lay out in the book. So I'd love to have you come back again to share more about the remarkable fitness of nature for beings such as ourselves. That's fine. My pleasure, Eric. Thank you for joining us at ID the Future. To learn more about the stunning fitness of nature for beings such as ourselves, order your copy of The Miracle of Man today at outlets like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Join us again soon as we continue to explore the remarkable evidence for design in nature and consider helping us spread this important message by sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.